Heavenly Father, please would you now open our eyes that we may see the wonder of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for all that he's done for us. And we pray that in your goodness, you will expand our hearts and minds. Amen. So, 70 years ago, a bunch of people stood up in Westminster Abbey, and for most of them, for the first time in their lifetimes, they sang the words, God save the Queen. Because for the previous few decades, they had sung, God save the King. Of course, I say for most of them, because some of them remembered back in the day of Queen Victoria, where they had sung, God save the Queen. God save the Queen, God save the King, God save the Queen, it's our national anthem. And it's actually not a bad one. It's got some good themes in there. It is, first of all, a prayer. God save the queen. And we're praying for a couple of things for her. One is we're praying for a long life, a long and healthy life, long to reign over us. That's what they sang and that's what they prayed. And second, we're praying for the monarch to be a Christian. God save the queen. And that might mean just protect her, keep her safe. But in the context of the service and in the context of what Christians believe uh, in that service, the idea is that really you're praying for her salvation, praying for the queen or the monarch to become a believer if she wasn't. And today, we sing it with extra meaning. I don't know if you joined in. We sang it in church this morning. We're not going to do it this evening. But uh, we sang it this morning, and you sing it with extra meeting because, because it is the Platinum Jubilee. Never had one of those before. She has had, as we've prayed, a long life. She is our longest reigning monarch and our longest living monarch. And by her own words, she is a living Christian. She says she lives by trust and faith in the Lord Jesus, which means that the values that we look for in a, in a Christ follower should be a mark of her reign. And God has answered that prayer. It is worth remembering, though, isn't it, that that is a prayer. It's not a community sing-song. It's not Swing Low, Sweet Chariot or Sweet Caroline. It's a different kind of thing, a national anthem, this kind of national anthem, where it's a prayer to God. It's a great national anthem. But it's not the first, well, even not the only one, but it's not the first. So we're going to look at one which is much, much older. If you've uh, got a Bible, I have to crack it open round about the middle of the book of Psalms. Uh, Psalm 21, which is on page 553. Or crack open your app of choice to find it. Psalm 21. And you'll see as we read it, it's not so much uh, a national anthem as we would use it, as a coronation song. So here we go, Psalm 21. Psalm 21, for the director of music, a psalm of David. The king rejoices in your strength, Lord. How great is his joy in the victories you give. You have granted him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. You came to greet him with rich blessings and placed a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked you for life and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. 
Through the victories you gave, his glory is great. You have bestowed on him splendor and majesty. Surely you have granted him unending blessings and made him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. Through the unfailing love of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Your hand will lay hold on all your enemies. Your right hand will seize your foes. When you appear for battle, you will burn them up as in a blazing furnace. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and his fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth, their posterity from mankind. Though they plot evil against you and devise wicked schemes, they cannot succeed. You will make them turn their backs when you aim at them with drawn bow. Be exalted in your strength, Lord. We will sing and praise your might. So we're to imagine this at a coronation. Now it says a psalm of David. That might mean written by David or written about David. It might mean written about or for the house of David, his, his descendants. It's a, it's a poetic genius who writes these kinds of things, so I always track them back to King David himself. So it's a coronation one, isn't it? We've got the... Uh, Verse 3, you placed a crown of pure gold on his head. Here's the shape of it. Um, teaching the children this morning, and I teach you as well. Uh, imagine that your hands are a butterfly. You can do it if you want to. Imagine that your hands are a butterfly, and that's kind of the shape of the psalm. If you think about your two thumbs on the outside of the wings, that's the first and the last verse of the psalm, and they meet with very similar themes. So look with me, verse 1. The king rejoices in your strength, Lord. How great is his joy in the victories you give. And the very last verse. Be exalted in your strength, Lord. We will sing and praise your might. So God's strength is on the outermost parts of the psalm. It's the beginning and the end. It's, it's where we go. And then we've got... Um, the butterfly's body, if you like, in the middle, where your little fingers meet. The thing right in the middle, verse 7. For the king trusts in the Lord through the unfailing love of the Most High. He will not be shaken. That's the middle point of the psalm, and it's, it's the king saying, or people saying about the king, this king trusts in God completely for everything. Then you've got the two wings either side of that center point. The first wing is verses 2 to 6. And that is where you've got the coronation scene, and it is God himself crowning the king. And in the second half, verses 8 to 11, the king defeats his enemies. It's an expression of the king that he rules wisely and perfectly and with strength over his enemies. And that's not personal peak. Remember, the king is supposed to express righteousness and lawfulness and goodness. So his enemies are those who express violence and threats and murder and so forth. So it's a good thing that the king defeats his enemies because they're not personal. They're national. They're moral. And that's the two halves of the butterfly. God crowns the king. The king executes justice. In the middle, the king has trust in God and the two thumbs are to do with God's strength. That's how the psalm works. It's wonderful. And year after year, month after month, week after week, coronation after coronation, the psalm was said. 
And there was a problem, a major problem, because King David was a major disappointment. Did King David defeat all his enemies? Well, he just about did. There were a number of coups against his monarchy during his lifetime, and he fled for his life once. Did, did King David live a good life? Was he a moral, upright believer? No, he was not. He was a flawed king. And most of all, he died. Look at verse 4 again. He asked you for life and you gave it to him. Length of days, forever and ever. That's not long to reign over us. That's forever to reign over us. And King David died. So he's a disappointment. Well, they kept saying the psalm. They kept running on. So his son Solomon became king. Did Solomon defeat his enemies? Well, yes, he did. He, he, was probably, he was more effective as a king than David. He inherited a kingdom and it became much greater. Did he live a good life, honoring God all the way through to the end? No, he did not. He started out well, but he ended at somebody who was worshipping other gods. And every king that came down that line was a disappointment. Every king, every coronation would be one of great, great hope and ended in despair. Most just failed. There were some good ones, but even the good ones still died. Each one in turn is not the king that is being pointed to. And so the habit grew of saying these kinds of psalms and looking for a perfect king, because all the kings that come along are imperfect. Looking for a forever king, because all the kings that come along die. Looking for God to step in. Verse 9, the Lord will swallow them up in his wrath. Looking for God to be the king. Now, if you're a Christian believer, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know how this goes. When we start to look for a greater, better King David... We end up looking at Jesus, don't we? When we start to look for a greater, better Solomon, we end up looking for Jesus. When you look for a perfect king, you end up looking at Jesus. When you look for a forever king, you end up looking at Jesus. When you look at God being king, you end up looking at Jesus. And throughout Christian history, there's been a wonderful tradition of Christians looking at all the Psalms as being on the lips of Jesus. And this Psalm particularly on the lips of Jesus, not during his life so much, not during his death, not even with his resurrection day, although there are psalms that do all those. They said for 2,000 years that the most fitting day to imagine this psalm being said by Jesus was on Ascension Day, which we celebrated about a week and a half ago in the Christian year. On Ascension Day, you imagine again Jesus' coronation. You imagine Jesus ascending step by step, higher and higher, into God's presence. Victory won. You imagine him recounting all that he has done through his death and resurrection. Everything that God placed on his heart has been achieved. Victory has been won. His enemies have been defeated. Sin, death, the devil lie fallen before him. And God the Father takes the golden crown and places it on 
the head of the Lord Jesus, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Extraordinary thought, isn't it? That we can go one step further, because I could have said that on almost any day. Let's press the little button marked Jubilee. Where did Jubilee come from? Jubilee is an Old Testament term. comes from the, the Scriptures. And it goes like this. Every seven days, there would be a day of rest, a Sabbath. And that pattern of seven, with the final one being one of rest, was played out on an annual cycle too. So every seven years was supposed to be a Sabbath year. The land would lie fallow, and people would just eat the crops that grew naturally, because it was a fertile land and it would do it. And more than that, you multiplied up, and so after every seven Sabbath years, that's after 49, seven times seven, the 50th year would be kind of a double Sabbath year. And that year was called the year of jubilee, meaning a year of trumpets, a renouncements, re a year of fabulous news. You can find it all in Leviticus chapter 25. You'll find the Sabbath year, you'll find the jubilee year. And it was quite astonishing what was planned for the jubilee year. So all the slaves, all the Jewish slaves in Israel would be freed automatically. They would go back to their homes. Lands which might have been squandered or put into debt would go back to their owners. Kind of massive resetting of the clock uh, as freedom and rightness and lawfulness comes into place and justice and equity and all those things line up on the year of Jubilee. You know the tragedy? As far as we know, they never actually did it. It was there on the books, literally in the books, Leviticus 25. But... They never actually did it, as far as we know. And so the habit grew up in the prophets of starting to look for a great day when God would step in and do this. A day of God's action, a day of God's salvation, a day of God's great jubilee. And they looked forward to someone who was going to come down the track and announce it. Here's a good example. This is from the prophet Isaiah. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 61. It's on page 749. Isaiah, at this stage, is uh, speaking on behalf of an individual who's called the servant. He's putting words, well, not putting words on the servant's mouth. He's, he's getting the words that the servant would be saying. And it goes like this. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for all who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. 
That's right to mark a jubilee with planting trees then, isn't it? At that echo this weekend too. But notice the beginning of it. The Lord, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news, to announce the year of the Lord's favor. And if you know your Bibles, you will know that those are words that Jesus himself uses as he begins his public ministry. So turn on to Luke's life of Jesus, Luke's gospel, chapter 4. You can find this on page 1031. Verse 16. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and as the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, Jesus says, I'm here to make Jubilee happen. I'm here not just to announce, but to put into practice for the first time maybe in history, God's Jubilee plan. Now, through his life and ministry, you begin to see that happen. You see people who are burdened and tied being released. You see people who are weighed down by guilt being freed. But above all, you see it in his death and his resurrection as he defeats the great enemies that stand against us and rises victorious over his enemies, ascends. And then, not just ascended and crowned, but what happens straight afterwards? He gives his Holy Spirit to his people. What day is that called? The day of Pentecost. Do you know what today is in the church calendar? The day of Pentecost. What an amazing day to be celebrating the Jubilee, because this is Jubilee Day. This is Pentecost Day. This is Holy Spirit Day. Do you know how many days after Easter, Pentecost falls? Fifty. That's what the word Pentecost means. Fifty. This is the fiftieth day. Seven times seven plus one. Just like the Jubilee cycle was seven times seven plus one for years. Jesus pours out his spirit. And what he has done, he echoes in every Christian's life. We heard it from Keisha. We've heard it for 2,000 years. He takes the individual Christian and says, you now go free. You are forgiven. Right is restored. Goodness will flow. Righteousness happens. You'll be filled with this, my spirit. That is the mark of Jubilee. And in a sense, I suppose you could say then, the queen, as a believer in Jesus, has been celebrating her Jubilee every day that she's been a Christian. As someone who's a Christ follower. And so can you. And so can I. Because filled with the Spirit, we are what God had always intended us to be as a result of Jesus' victory. So let's stay with Psalm 21 one last time. Let's read it again. I'll read it to you. And this time, 
Try to see it through the eyes, through the lips of Jesus. Victorious over his enemies. Splendid in his victory. The king rejoices in your strength, Lord. How great is his joy in the victories you give. You have granted him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. You came to greet him with rich blessings and placed a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked you for life and you gave it to him. Length of days, forever and ever. Through the victories you gave, his glory is great. You have bestowed on him splendor and majesty. Surely you have granted him unending blessings and made him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. Through the unfailing love of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Your hand, Lord Jesus, will lay hold on all your enemies. Your right hand will seize your foes. When you appear for battle, you will burn them up as in a blazing furnace. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and his fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth, their posterity from mankind. Though they plot evil against you and devise wicked schemes, they cannot succeed. You will make them turn their backs when you aim at them with drawn bow. Be exalted in your strength, Lord. We will sing and praise your might. God crowns the king, the first wing of the butterfly, and the king defeats his enemies, the second wing. So can we as Christians sing, God save the queen? I think we can, but the deepest reason we can pray, we can pray, God save the queen, is because the God who will save the queen is the risen Lord Jesus who will reign forever victory one let's pray Lord Jesus you are the victorious king victory one your heart's desire achieved for the salvation of your people you are crowned with glory and majesty and then pour out the blessings of your Holy Spirit Your wonderful, right, blessed rule will defeat all your enemies and bring your kingdom of righteousness and justice and love and joy forever. Thank you that you are our king forever and ever.